I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 180 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I've got a rather unique episode for you. And it's one that, admittedly, I hesitated doing. When I think of important historical moments or advancements in history that might be fun to feature as an episode's famous date, I add it to an ever-growing list that I have. One event that has been on this list for a very long time is an event that signified a coming together of two things. Two things that had a lot of baggage and a rough history together. It was a really big deal at the time, and I'm sure many of you were alive when it happened and probably remember it. But these two things have had a rocky relationship over the last few years, and it is continuously getting worse and worse, including a breaking news report that literally came through my newsfeed while I was working on this episode. But since it's important to remember the good times as well as the bad, I'm still going to feature this subject. The date is June 29th, 1995, and I'm taking today's main event headline from the Marshfield News Herald out of Marshfield, Wisconsin. The headline says, Atlantis Mirror Link in Space. Friends, this was the date that the United States Space Program and the Russian Space Program, the two countries who had been the most involved in the space race for many decades, first met up in space at the Mir space station. The article described it as, quote, an extraordinary display of scientific cooperation between two former rivals. Now, before we get too far into this, I do need to say that our two countries had had spacecraft link up before, many years earlier, but this was the first time the event happened at a space station. When the United States Atlanta Space Shuttle docked with Mir, it formed the largest man-made satellite to ever orbit the Earth. It was also America's 100th human space mission. The space flight began on June 27th at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Millions of people around the country and the world tuned into their televisions to watch the historic moment. Then, on the morning of June 29th, 245 miles above Asia, the two spacecrafts met for the first time. There were three Russian cosmonauts on board the Mirror at the time, and they started broadcasting Russian folk songs to welcome the crew of the Atlantis to their new temporary home. Now, when I was a kid, if you asked someone what they wanted to be when they grew up, a lot of them would say that they wanted to be an astronaut. That was never a desire of mine, ever. I am completely fine staying down here in Earth's atmosphere. And when I read about the skills it took to maneuver the 100-ton Atlantis space shuttle into its spot, a spot that the commander had to get within three inches of, it makes me realize even more how okay I am with not going to space. But, of course, the commander of that mission, Robert Gibson, knew what he was doing, and he nailed the docking. As soon as Mir and Atlantis were connected, the crews met and clasped hands in greeting in a very historical moment of cooperation. 
Then the crews exchanged gifts with each other. Atlantis brought chocolate, fruit, and flowers. The Russians gave them traditional welcoming gifts, like bread and salt. Now, when Atlantis left for Mir, it was carrying two Russian cosmonauts as well as the Americans. When it left Mir a few days later, those cosmonauts traded places with the three that had already been there, and they returned to Earth with Atlantis. In all, NASA and the Mir Space Station completed 11 missions together before the International Space Station was completed in cooperative efforts by the U.S., Russia, Canada, Japan, and Europe. Then, on March 23, 2001, Mir had served its purpose, and it re-entered Earth's atmosphere, breaking apart over the South Pacific, where some people reported seeing streaks of white light as it made its way to its watery grave. Now, as interesting as space travel might be, that was just one thing that was being reported in newspapers on June 29, 1995. So, let's take off in some more newspapers and see what else was being reported that same day. For my first additional history story of the day, there were a lot of options. One was a very, very, very big deal, but it was also a very long, ongoing story, and I've already covered it a little bit in a different episode. Yes, I'm talking about the O.J. Simpson trial. Atlantis docking with Mir happened right in the middle of the 11-month trial. Another story that was making a lot of headlines was that the former Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger had passed away and was lying in state in the Supreme Court building before his funeral. Again, it's interesting, but not quite what I was looking for. Instead, I'm going to share a headline from the front page of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram out of Texas on June 29, 1995. This story was a pretty big deal. It says, Unabomber calls threat to attack plane a prank. Two days earlier, on June 27th, the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper had received a letter, supposedly from the Unabomber, that described a major threat. The letter said, Warning, the terrorist group FC, called Unabomber by the FBI, is planning to blow up an airliner out of Los Angeles International Airport sometime during the next six days. To prove that the writer of this letter knows something about FC, the first two digits of their identifying number are 55. Well, since the Unabomber had carried through on plans before, people were understandably worried. The FBI said that they 100% believed the letter was from the actual Unabomber and not a hoax, because of that last part about the identifying number. In past letters to the FBI, the Unabomber had included a nine-digit number, a number that the FBI didn't release publicly, so they always knew when correspondence was real. At this time in history, the FBI had an 80-man team assigned just to the Unabomber case, and they believed the person who sent the letter lived somewhere in the Sacramento area. Just a few months ago, LAX was ranked as the second busiest airport in the country. 
Back in 1995, it was only the fourth busiest, but that's still a lot of people. And since it was the busy summer season, authorities said about 74,000 people passed through there every single day. There was no way of knowing where the bomb would be among the many planes that were taking off and landing. So, of course, LAX beefed up their security. But it still wasn't what we're used to today in our post-9-11 world. And since people still had places to go, very few of them canceled their flights, with everyone hoping that it wasn't their flight that the bomb was on. Except, like the headline suggests, there was never going to be a bomb. The day after writing the first letter, the Unabomber sent a second letter, that time to the New York Times, and he told them it was a prank. Nothing was actually going to be blown up, and, quote, Since the public has a short memory, we decided to play one last prank to remind them who we are. But, no, we haven't tried to plant a bomb on an airplane recently. The FBI took a look at that second letter, and again agreed that it was authentic, and that the Unabomber was probably telling the truth. But, what if he wasn't? There was still some doubt. Was the Unabomber just trying to create a false sense of security? This might be a good time to tell you what was known about the Unabomber in 1995. At that time, he had been operating for nearly 20 years. The first time he struck was when he set off a bomb at Northwestern University in Chicago, clear back in 1978. A security guard was injured in that incident, but nobody was killed. Then, over the next seven years, the Unabomber sent nine different packages through the mail, including a couple to airline executives at United and American Airlines and a Boeing facility. Some people were seriously injured in those incidents. Some of the other bombs again went to universities, like the University of Utah, Vanderbilt University, the University of California at Berkeley, and the University of Michigan. And that's pretty much how the Unabomber got his name. Even though he claimed to be from some group known as the FC, the FBI suspected that it was someone acting alone. The UN in the name Unabomber came from University, one of his targets. The A in Una came from Airlines, another of his targets. And then, of course, we know why they ended the nickname with Bomber. In December of 1985, everything changed for the worse. A bomb was sent to a computer store owner in Sacramento, and it went off. That man, Hugh Scruton, was killed. The bombings would continue with more serious injuries, and then another death when a man named Thomas Moser received a package at his home in New Jersey and was killed. The Unabomber's third victim came just two months before today's famous date, so everyone was on edge. That happened on April 24, 1995. A timber industry lobbyist named Gilbert Murray was killed in Sacramento that time. With a death fresh on everyone's mind, you can imagine that the idea of a bomb on an airplane wasn't a pleasant thought, and everyone hoped that the Unabomber's claim that it was a joke was the truth. 
And it was. There was never a bomb at LAX, thank heavens. And that April attack ended up being the Unabomber's last attack. However, he wasn't done with his communication. That same summer, and I'm not sure if it was before the LAX incident or after it, the Unabomber sent a 35,000-word manifesto that he titled Industrial Society and Its Future to the New York Times and the Washington Post. That's about the size of a short novel. It was huge. The Unabomber instructed them to print the manifesto in their newspapers. And if they didn't, he'd send more bombs. Well, it took the FBI a little bit of time to decide what they wanted to do. But they finally gave the go-ahead, and the manifesto was published in September. And they hoped that maybe some of the wording would trigger something for someone. And they'd get some good clues to the identity of the Unabomber. The manifesto made claims that technology and industry were bad things, and that nature was a good thing, and people needed to revert back to those more natural ways. And it turned out that publishing the manifesto was a very good thing. Thousands of clues and tips poured into the FBI offices. Some of them stood out more than others, especially a tip that came from a man named David Kaczynski. He said that it sounded just like his brother, Theodore, or Ted, Kaczynski. He also said that his brother had been living in Salt Lake City and Sacramento at the time bombs were sent to those cities. David had started to wonder if his brother could maybe be involved in the bombings before the manifesto was even published, but that kind of sealed the deal for him. So, just who was Ted Kaczynski? Well, he was born in Chicago in 1942. David was his only sibling. Those who knew Ted growing up called him a loner, but he was very smart, and he ended up skipping a grade or two so that he graduated early from high school. He then attended Harvard University on a full scholarship, which is super impressive. Again, he didn't make a lot of friends, but he still got good grades. Now, while Ted was attending Harvard, he agreed to participate in some sort of psychological study. He had to write an essay about his personal philosophy and his different feelings on things. And then while he was hooked up to a machine that could test his physiological responses to things, someone went through that essay and insulted him and his ideas. It sounds so incredibly bizarre to me to just sit there and let someone insult my ideas for hours. And I can't imagine doing something like that for very long. But Ted was said to have put in 200 hours over three years. It totally screwed him up mentally and emotionally, but he still managed to graduate from the university. He then went on to earn his master's and doctorate degrees, and he taught at the University of California at Berkeley for a couple of years. But then he suddenly quit, without any real good reason, and he moved to a cabin in a very rural part of Montana, a cabin that he built with his brother David. And when the FBI came knocking at his door a few months after the manifesto was published, in April of 1996, 
that cabin in Montana is where they found him. He had taught himself survival skills, and he did his best to live off the grid and not socialize with anyone. He'd been estranged from his brother for a while at that point, too. Inside the cabin, the FBI found all the evidence they needed to put him away for a very long time. It included bomb-making supplies and journal entries with details about his activities. Ted Kaczynski pled guilty and was sent to a supermax prison in Colorado in 1998. Last summer, he was transferred to some sort of prison medical facility in North Carolina. He's now 80 years old, but he won't ever be getting out of prison. For today's second additional history story from June 29, 1995, I'm taking a headline from the Tipton County Tribune out of Tipton, Indiana. It says, Duran gets 40 years in prison. Since this story is about someone getting sentenced to prison, I'm going to have to back up in time a bit and tell you what led to this person getting such a big sentence. This story is about a man named Francisco Martin Duran. Francisco was born in a poor, high-crime neighborhood in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That was back in 1968. Francisco had six other siblings, and every single one of them had a different father. His mom was a cleaning lady, and she struggled to make ends meet for her large family, and had to rely on things like food stamps and other help from the government. Just like Ted Kaczynski, Francisco didn't have a lot of friends in school and kind of just blended into the background. He joined the junior ROTC in high school, but that was about all the effort he made to get involved in anything. Then, when he was 17, he got into trouble with the law for the first time. We all know that teenagers do stupid things, and Francisco tried to steal a backhoe claiming that he just wanted to take it for a joyride. Well, at his trial, the judge decided since it was the first time he'd been in trouble, and since nobody had gotten hurt, maybe he'd offer the boy a way out. He told Francisco that he wouldn't send him to jail if he'd promised to join the army instead. Francisco happily agreed, and since he was still a minor, his mom signed the paperwork giving her permission. Francisco knew that if he was in the military, a lot of opportunities would be open for him, including maybe getting his education paid for when he was done. Francisco was sent to a base in Hawaii, which I'm guessing he was totally okay with, and he met someone there, fell in love, got married, and had a son. Life was going really well, but it didn't last long. In 1990, Francisco went to a bowling alley with some of his army buddies. They all got drunk and started to argue and fight with some civilians who were also at the bowling alley. The civilians didn't like how the men were acting while they were drunk. Well, Francisco decided to leave, and he got in his car. But when he tried to pull out of the parking lot, some of the people he'd been fighting blocked his way. So, he got out of his car, some more words were exchanged, and I'm not sure if the fight ever got physical or not, but when Francisco got back into his car, instead of just leaving the scene, he turned around and drove his car into the crowd still standing in the parking lot. 
One woman was injured, and it wasn't long before Francisco was arrested by the military police. He was, of course, court-martialed and found guilty of drunken driving, aggravated assault, drunk and disorderly conduct, and leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to spend five years in military prison, but he was released in 1993 after serving just half of his sentence. That's when he started stalking someone, a very important someone, the President of the United States. For whatever reason, Francisco Duran hated Bill Clinton, and he would fantasize about killing him with his bare hands. In September of 1994, Francisco started buying assault weapons, since that would be a more likely way for him to get at the president than bare hands. He bought multiple guns and a lot of ammunition and started making plans for an attack. Now, when Francisco started making his plans, he was 26 years old. He was living in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and working as an upholsterer. He was still married and still had just the one son. On September 30th, he left work and didn't tell anyone where he was going. He climbed into his pickup and started driving east toward Washington, D.C. Francisco didn't even tell his wife where he was going or what he was doing. She was so worried when he didn't come home at all that night that she went to the sheriff's office the next day and filed a missing person report for her husband. It took Francisco more than a week to get to Washington, D.C., and I'm not really sure what took him so long, but when he got to Virginia... He bought more ammunition and a large trench coat so that he could hide everything inside it. Then he drove himself to the capital city and checked into a hotel. Except he didn't stay in just that one hotel. He spent the next 19 days moving around from hotel to a different hotel to a different hotel in and around the city and trying to track the president's movements and figure out a way to assassinate him. On the morning of October 29th, which was a Sunday morning, Francisco once again went down to the White House and stood outside the gates. That morning, President Clinton was returning from a trip to the Middle East, and Francisco watched as the president's helicopter landed on the lawn of the White House, and the president climbed out. I don't know why Francisco didn't act out his fantasy right then, but I'm not positive that he had his trench coat on him, and that might have been why. Either way, he eventually put it on and returned to the White House. As usual, there were a lot of people milling about, taking pictures, viewing the famous home, and acting like tourists, probably. Francisco really hoped the president would come outside at some point. Then, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a couple of boys who were also standing by the fences pointed out a man and said, hey, that looks like the president. That was the only push Francisco needed. In just a matter of seconds, he'd pulled out a semi-automatic assault rifle, pushed the boys aside, and started firing at the man he believed to be Bill Clinton. Francisco continued to fire as he ran back and forth along the fence, and he soon emptied an entire clip of 30 rounds. Everyone else in the area scattered and ran, terrified for their lives. When Francisco stopped to reload, one of the witnesses to the incident knew 
that they weren't going to get another opportunity to take the gunman down and that someone had to act. The man, Michael Rakowski, darted out and tackled Francisco from behind. Two other men soon joined him, and the three of them held Francisco down until the Secret Service could get to them and take over. Somehow, miraculously, nobody was injured in the shooting, even with that many rounds being fired. And no, the man Francisco believed to be President Clinton was not actually President Clinton. The president was inside the White House, but on the opposite side of the mansion, and he didn't even hear the shots fired as he sat and watched a football game on TV. There was no doubt that Francisco Duran was the gunman that day. There were a lot of witnesses to the crime. But he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. He started making wild claims, including something about destroying aliens that had some sort of connection to Colorado, but it didn't work. And as we know from the headline I read you at the beginning of this story, Francisco Duran was found guilty and sentenced to 40 years in a federal prison. He also had to pay $3,200 for damages he caused to the White House and $500 of additional penalties. At the end of his sentencing, Francisco said, My acts were inexcusable and wrong. I'm sorry that I've not only ruined my life and my future, but that of my wife and son. I'm just glad Francisco had a bad aim. For my third and final additional history story of the day, I've got another interesting crime story for you. This headline comes from the Greenville News out of Greenville, South Carolina. It says, Slip and Fall Fraud Artist Sentence. This is seriously a crazy story. I know that there are people out there that try to scam people by pretending to get hurt so they can sue and collect insurance money. But I had no idea that there were entire crime rings based on the business and that people make careers out of it. One of those crime rings was the Balog family, and the man the headline said was being sentenced was David Balog Jr. Way back in the early 1980s, a member of the Balog family, and I'm not sure how he was related to David Jr., had a legitimate accident where he ended up with a compression fracture in his vertebrae. I couldn't find anywhere whether that man collected money from the real accident or not. But either way, he decided it was a nice way to make some easy money, since the fracture still showed up on x-rays. He used that one fracture to make 17 different claims over the next dozen or so years. Other family members thought that was great, so they started having fake accidents too, and they were very committed to their work. The family would purposely spill drinks and then slip and fall on them. And to make the accidents look worse than they were, the family would conceal razor blades in their hands and then cut themselves when they fell so that when they stood up, they were covered in blood. When they met with insurance adjusters, they would stuff cotton in their noses and in their mouths so that they looked swollen. And they were pretty good at doing their makeup to look like they had bruises on their bodies. But the Balog family didn't just have slip and fall accidents. Oh no, one of their specialties was faking car accidents. 
They'd ram their cars into poles at slow speeds and then spread blood on themselves to make it look worse than it was. Where did they get the blood, you ask? They would use syringes to suck out their own blood so they could later smear it on themselves. The family would also fake accidents to collect on people's homeowner's insurance and commit burglaries too. Over the years, the family collected more than $750,000 from 73 different claims in 15 different states. But the family had to fall at some point, right? Well, that happened when another fraud crime ring, the Calio clan, got caught and charged for their crimes. Even though it was a separate organization, David Ballard Jr. was worried because they had ties to the Calio clan, and he was even related to them somehow through marriage. The Ballards and the Calios knew about each other, and David Jr. figured it was only a matter of time until one of the Calios turned them all in as part of a plea deal or something. David also had a lot of gambling debts and other problems, and it was starting to eat at him. He decided that if he turned himself in and ratted out the rest of his family, it would finally bring an end to all of his problems. So, he did just that. In all, 31 different members of the Balog family organization were arrested and charged. And that included a couple of police officers that had gotten involved with them. When David went to trial and was sentenced, he was the last of those 31. He'd had to watch already and listen as each of them went through the ordeal of a trial, wondering what would eventually happen to him. David Jr. was sentenced to 20 months in prison, but the judge ordered something else that was unique. And if you've ever watched the TV show White Collar, it totally makes me think of that. You see, after David Jr. got out of prison, he was sentenced to three more years working with the National Insurance Crime Bureau as a consultant of sorts. Before he even went to trial, he'd already started traveling around to different seminars to share his knowledge with insurance adjusters. The thing I don't understand is, if you're going to put that much time and effort into scamming someone, why not put that much time and effort into a legitimate career? But maybe I'm just crazy. Okay, for today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the News Democrat and Leader out of Russellville, Kentucky. This advertisement was clear on page 27 of this June 29, 1995 edition of the newspaper. And I chose it because apparently I've been living under a rock for the last 28 years. But let me explain. This advertisement is for Dairy Queen. Of course, I've been to Dairy Queen, and I know that they're known for their ice cream treats and desserts, and lunch and dinner dishes like burgers and fries, and chicken fingers. But this ad isn't for any of those things. This ad is for Dairy Queen's breakfast food. Specifically, a twin pack of sausage breakfast biscuits for just 99 cents. Sounds like a pretty good deal. But friends, I had no idea that Dairy Queen served breakfast. I have seriously never heard of such a thing. I thought maybe it was just something they tried out in the 1990s. So I looked it up. Yep, Dairy Queen still serves breakfast. 
I guess I'll have to try it sometime. Anyway, thanks for joining me for today's episode and a look back at the summer of 1995. How many of those stories do you remember? And how many of them are new to you? Join me again this Thursday for a fun mini-episode that I think will be a great way to end Women's History Month. Then I'll be back again on Monday with another new full-size episode about an event that had worldwide consequences. Talk to you later.